You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the Bible show where the only <laughs> Bible show with Emily and me, right? Our claim to fame right there. <laughs> well, I guess not the only one. Sometimes the commentarians has it. Yeah. The only one every week. Yeah. We, we haven't done a commentarians together in a while. Maybe we need to put that on the schedule. Yeah. Well, we can plan to do that next time you come in. We got the TV now. It'll yeah. be a lot easier. Just have to figure out a movie. Maybe that's what we need. So folks in the paddle store can like send us their suggestion. What movie do you want Nathan and I to comment on? That could be dangerous. Do we want to entrust them with that kind of responsibility? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I have some ideas. I just need to, I need to find a guest uh, who's also into <laughs> some similar stuff. But um, anyway, um, but that's not why we're here. No, we're here it's because not. we're here to talk about. Well, I was about to say Uza, but we wrapped that we wrapped up Uza. Wrapped now up Uza. We're here because David moved the ark successfully. He got it there. Or the ark allowed itself to be moved. Yeah, yeah, and we talked. Well, God about... allowed the ark to be moved because the ark's not the sentient thing. Right, right. It's just so overshadowed by God's power. It almost seems the, the as language if language gets a bit fuzzy. Right, but definitely not like in the sense that an idol from another nation would have been. So right. it is distinct from God, and it doesn't contain God. Well, yeah, it's a, uh, well, where was it? It's in the Bible. <laughs> well, that's always helpful. Well, it's one of the recent verses we were looking at um, where, uh, where the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Yeah, uh, above. He doesn't inhabit the ark. Right. So that's where the... Uh, differences from the idols. Yeah, which is really a cool distinction when you think about it, because it's such a minor shift, but it makes all the difference. And so that God would be above the symbol of his presence versus an idol who's where the mouth and the, the nose had to be open so that the, the deity could inhabit the idol. Yeah. And so... And, and he sits even above the most holy symbol. So even the most holy symbol... Cannot contain. Cannot him. contain or describe him. So... <laughs> There you go. That part's for free, I suppose. Yeah, but it's it's a good part. So, um, yeah. So we we've, we've talked about that. The the ark has arrived, um, and this is another point in the narrative where Chronicles and Samuel kind of take two different routes to describe this event. Mm -hmm. So if we go to Chronicles 16, 4 through 7, we're given another list of names, and again we're. Uh, given Levites, the names of the Levites who minister before the ark, the musicians and their instruments once again. So are you still kind of getting the feel that the instruments and the music is a big deal in mm -hmm. the temple? Mm -hmm. uh, the Chronicles is really driving that home. And we're told that when David is first appointed that th these Levites to, fil to fulfill this position, he actually names Asaph to give songs of thanksgiving, Asaph and his brothers. Mm -hmm. Most of us know this name because it's in a lot of superscriptions within the Psalms. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us, I, I think it's funny, the number of people that I've talked to who don't realize that he's actually described in Chronicles. His name is there. We know what his function is. He's not just some kind of random person that springs from nowhere. Right. He actually has a role within David's kingdom that's, that's described. And 
this kind of sets us up because then we aren't surprised when we have a psalm dropped into the middle of the narrative, and it's a song that David composed for Asaph and his brothers to sing. And so I wanted to look at the psalm. The psalm's in First Chronicles 16, and it's actually a combination of psalms. So it's made up of Psalms 105, verses 1 through 15, Psalms 96, 1 through 13, Psalms 106, 47 through 48. So most commentators agree that Psalm 105 was composed prior to the events in Chronicles, So if David actually authored this psalm, it's in the form that he repurposed it and combined it with these other two psalms in celebration of bringing the ark into Jerusalem. So he's doing what we've seen um, happen with psalms from other nations where they've had psalms to Baal or psalms to uh, different gods in their community. Now David's doing the, the exact same thing, but he's he's agreeing. He, he's mm. heightening the meaning instead of subverting the meaning. And this psalm um, was either written or edited to convey one very specific meaning, and that's God is king in Israel. And so we, we need to know that the, pro- the prophecy has been fulfilled and there's a future promise that's going to be realized. So we're going to pick up in verse 8 of uh, Psalm 16. And it says, people are first called upon to give thanks. Uh, so I'm sorry, I didn't realize I paraphrased this part. Uh, they're, they're told to make known or testify within verse 8. And the people encompass all humanity, not just Israel. Okay. So, and we're just, I'm not spending a lot of time going in depth because I, I don't want to take each one of these apart. I, I want to just kind of give an overview of what's, what the message is. So, you know, take time, pause it, you know, go back and read whatever uh, on your own time. But verses nine and 10, it shows that God has promised it should be praised for his wonderful works. Sorry, he should be praised for his wonderful works. And God's activity in human history are the evidence of his character. So when we see what God's doing in response to the people who love and worship him, this should reveal his character to him. And we're all urged to seek his presence. Again, this isn't just to Israel. This is to everyone. And we're supposed to remember God's miracle and his his judgments. So... In verse 13, the the people are to sing of the special relationship Israel has with God. The children of Jacob have been chosen. And so verse 14, and again, quick flyby of all this, once again, we're reminded that God's judgments encompass the entire earth. And in verse 15, Israel can testify to this fact because God has kept his promises for a thousand generations. Uh, And this is what gives Israel credibility or should give Israel credibility in the eyes of all the people of the earth. So verse 16 and 17, it restates that the credibility is based on the covenant made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Mm -hmm. And verse 18, the evidence of God's faithfulness is found in the land of Canaan. It says, to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. So Beth Beth Tanner uh, she's uh, the commentator in the New International uh, Commentary. I really like what she had to say here, and I don't think that I could say it much better, so I'm just going to read what she had to say. Okay. There's an underlying theological current in the psalm that the gifts of the law and the land go together. 
To be God's people, the people must keep God's law, and to keep the law, the people must have the land in which to keep it. The laws and statutes of the Lord are mutually related gifts. Spoken to a post-exilic audience, the phrase is a reminder that having returned to the land, the people also need to return to the faithful observance of the law, which is completely in keeping with First Chronicles being written to that post-exilic mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, community. You, you have the land so that you can fulfill the law. Because if you're wandering around in the desert, if you can uh, think back to, to Exodus, like the law for circumcision was not observed while they're on the wilderness journeys. It's not until they enter the land that they can fulfill that commandment. And so we have some very specific things ca- that can only happen once you're a stable society and have a place to carry out these commands. So immediately we can see that by including this particular psalm, we would ha- it would have great significance to those who are in exile, like those that the chronicler is writing to, because when you reclaim the land, now you can honor the decrees, but more than that, you can remember who you are, but remembering who you are is also what drives you to want to reclaim the land. Mm-hmm. So you see how it's kind of symbiotic. And the who you are, if you're an Israelite, is a child of Abraham. You're a chosen people to bear witness to the world concerning God's character. So the primary evidence of Israel's uh, of God's character is is Israel's successful conquest of Canaan, and this makes the worship of God possible. And now, because they're worshiping God, they're fulfilling the identity of who they're called to be. Mm. So you know, it, it, it's kind of this very. Um, you almost have this whirl of concepts right. that kind of converge on the fact that they have conquered Canaan. And when the chronicler is writing, he's saying, you need to remember this is what we were always called to do. Mm. It, it, it's, it hasn't changed. So in verse 19 through 21, we're reminded that there was a time when Israel was a small nation without a home, and even then that they were protected. So, you know, if you're in exile— and you know, you're scattered about, and you maybe only know a few other Israelites, you need to remember that you're still protected. It may seem mm-hmm. like you're part of a small nation, but you're not. And the passage refers back to the wanderings of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the kings that are rebuked in that verse were specifically talking about Pharaoh and Abimelech. This is not Pharaoh with this uh, Pharaoh from the Exodus. This is Pharaoh for when Abraham passed Sarah off mm-hmm. as his uh, wife, a sister, not wife. And so this is the point in time that David's pointing the people's attention back to is that time of Abraham. Verse 22 has that often abused phrase, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. Right. So in this context, it, it denotes, again, all of Israel, not just David and the other, other leadership. It's talking about all of God's people because all of Israel is anointed under the covenant as far as being a chosen nation. And all of Israel is a prophet because all of Israel and their condition and what they've experienced is witness to God's direct divine intervention in the formation of them as a nation. Right. And so by... By having these promises fulfilled and living this way, they're they're showing that God can be trusted. Now, it's this point in Chronicles that the the writer shifts from Psalms 105 to to Psalms uh, 96. Now, this break is significant because it it directs the reader back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
And if you kept reading in Psalm 105, what you would find is that then you start moving into stories of the Exodus, but David doesn't want to talk about the Exodus. He doesn't want to talk about that time in Egypt. He wants to talk about the Abrahamic covenant, and he wants to completely ignore the covenant at Sinai, which is going to have some interesting implications. Now, Beth Tanner, again, I'm, she said it so well, there's no need to try to say anything else. She says, in the omission, it's halfway down the path towards subordinating the synactic covenant to the Abrahamic covenant. So basically, David is presenting the covenant with Abraham as superior to the covenant at Sinai. Right. So it's significant because this becomes the first national confession of God's might and his covenant with Israel. When they take over the new land, when they inhabit this capital city, this is the first thing that they proclaim as a people. They aren't going back to Sinai. They aren't looking at the Exodus. They're talking about Abraham. Well, I mean, if you think about it, and this is just, I'm just throwing this out here again, I don't know. Um, <laughs> the, you know, if you think about the Abrahamic covenant versus the Sinai covenant, mm -hmm. Um, Abraham met with God, mm -hmm. fed God, fed God. Yeah. <laughs> um, with no, no major, big, booming earth shaking signs of power. Mm -hmm. And he just believed him. Yeah. And he just did what was right. Right. He just, I mean, not all the time. I'm just, but he, but he honored God in a way that he, he knew to honor God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you have. An entire nation of people get to see the power of God moving in the storm around Sinai. Yeah, the mountain and rumbling. And then they have to get specific directions. Very specific. They don't just do what they need to do. So if you think about the action and the way they, you know, and again, I'm just throwing this out mm -hmm. here. If you think about the way they came together, yeah, you can kind of put that together that maybe, sure, it's a superior uh uh, relationship, mm -hmm. should we say? Well, and, and there is a whole um, school of argumentation out there that talks about how the Sinai covenant was a concession to the lack of faith mm -hmm. that the people had, and that Moses specifically, and Moses and specifically that started with Moses. Yes, because the idea that Moses needed Aaron alongside of him was a concession to Mo all of Moses' protest, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the idea that the, that the leader and the priest should be separated was completely new. I right. mean, no other nation practiced this. And no, you know, there's an idea that this was not what God wanted, but Moses lacked the faith to, to step up, and God said, you know what, I can still work with that. Yeah. And, you know, and he did, but it, it could have possibly led to some interesting scenarios and difficulties later on in Israel's um, future. And I think that's one of the reasons why David, who has reclaimed Jerusalem, and he has reunited that kingship and the priesthood in a very unique way for Israel, but definitely part of what the world understood as proper. And so, um, you know, he's also bringing back that sense of identity by referring to to the Abrahamic covenant. He's saying, you know, I don't want you to think of yourselves as the suffering slaves in Egypt. I don't want you to think as this rebellious nation mm -hmm. who's in the wilderness uh, journeys. 
And I don't want you to think of yourself as the ineffective people who couldn't even manage to conquer all of Canaan. Instead, I want you to think of yourself as a great nation, a blessing to the earth, one who received blessings from others, and people who enjoyed God's special protection, just as Abraham and Isaac and Jacob did, and people who would be as the stars. And so that that has a whole lot of significance to it. Mm-hmm. And it strengthens mm-hmm. this argument that David considered it proper to, to reunite the priesthood and the kingship as it was with Melchizedek. And so when you go back to Abraham and you bypass Sinai, now you're looking at a way a different time when things worked differently. Mm-hmm. And David's saying this is the time that Israel needs to reclaim and return to because this is where the promise began. Right. This was how it was supposed to um supposed to play out. And I did a real quick read through of the Psalms and I didn't use any searches so I my numbers could be off, but I did find it interesting when I did a real quick read through I found 13 Psalms that dealt with the Exodus and Egypt. Only one of those was authored by David. Hmm. That's how little David thought about that. Now, when you look at the the Psalms that David did write, he deals with themes like cosmology. He deals with kingship. He he talks about uh, Zion and he talks about the patriarchs. Hmm. This is David's focus. So verse 23, we're in Psalm uh, 96. And again, we're talking about the God's reign over all the earth, mm-hmm. the entire earth. Verse 24, his glory and marvelous works are, are to be declared to people of all nations, not just Israel. Verse 25, God's to be praised because he's a feared, a, he's feared, a feared. Oh, well, that was okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is feared above all gods. And in verse 26, it says, the gods of the people are worthless idols but the Lord made the heavens. Now, this verse has been an attempt to push back against the divine council worldview. Sure. Um, it, it, people say that it claims that gods are nothing more than images created by human hands. But this is us imposing our modern perceptions on the ancient text, because in A&E, or ancient Near Eastern religions, idols house the gods, and it's they're bound to this location by the house, kind of like we were talking earlier. Mm. And so one god could inhabit many idols in many different locations, but the image of that the god of the god that was being represented, this is it, it brought them to that place without right. diminishing them. Uh, but it still limited their influence to the place where the idol was. Right. So when you're talking about an idol, you're talking about a limited God. You're talking about a God whose, whose power is contained within that one area. And the thing is, these gods, within their own mythology, they're only allowed to act by either the creator God or the head of the pantheon who overthrew the creator God. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so when the psalmist proclaims that Yahweh is the creator of the so, heavens... Yeah, we'll say, and that's what other people believe, <laughs> not what we... We don't believe right. the creator God, <laughs> and we don't believe Yahweh's getting overthrown. Right, so. exactly, exactly. And so when, when the psalmist says this, though, what the other nations, people who had that mindset, what they're hearing is... God is the one who is the Lord over all these other gods by divine right. Mm-hmm. He, he has proven that any other God that functions 
has to to pay attention and submit to his will because he is the creator God and he hasn't not, been overthrown. Exactly, yeah. And so, I, you know, it, it's really great when you bring all of this into into that context. Now, verse 28 through 34, this is, it erupts with this command to give God the worship to him, not just people, but all of creation. Why? Because he's the creator God. So the earth, the heavens, the seas, the fields, the trees, all that was in within them, they should sing for joy because the Lord has come to judge the earth. But even in judgment, thanks, thanks is appropriate because he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. And then the the what we need to remember about the psalm is it's an enthronement psalm. It's used at the coronation of the kings of Israel, and it's a reminder that the king of Israel, all the kings of Israel, derive their authority from the God who chose him, and the God who rules over creation, plus the God who sets limits on other gods. So Brueggemann, uh, you know, he he explains it like this: the psalm is not about an event which most psalm scholarship seems to assume, but it's also about the long-term process which has begun here. Such a psalm is always an act of profound hope, for such a realm has clearly not been established simply by the use of a psalm. It is the making of a future momentarily present, now through word, gesture, and practice. So the psalm is explaining something that is happening. It's in the process of happening and it's going to be realized in the future. But you bring that future into this moment Mm -hmm. because you're participating in it. Right. And so when you participate in the future events through praise and worship, I mean, in some ways it's kind of like time travel. Uh, Not that we literally travel in time, but we we participate in the fact that time is subject to our God. And I, I like that. Um, Beth Tanner writes, this is a powerful psalm that reminds us of the weighty message of the weighty message that should be the content of our praise. So praise is not supposed to be light and fluffy. It's supposed to bring us to that place of awe. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to have that weight. And uh, you know, you brought it up in one of the previous episodes that the word for glory has that that yeah, kavod asp- has the weight aspect to it. I- exactly. And so, if we're going to praise God's glory, then our praise should be equally weighty. And so when David celebrates this arrival of the ark in Jerusalem, he's looking back and he's reminding them of their past identity that's rooted in the covenant with Abraham. And it's a celebration of God's character. And there's this um, authority to present hope to all of creation because God's character has been revealed in the fulfilled promises to Israel. And it's, it's amazing that when we talk about the Old Testament so often, we want to make Israel almost isolationist. And we're seeing mm-hmm. evidence here that it, it, it wasn't. It was never about being this isolated nation that had no impact on the rest of the world. They were supposed to be a witness. That's how mm-hmm. the psalm starts out. Testify. Make it known. You can trust God and his promises because we are now in the land that he promised to our ancestor Abraham. Mm-hmm. And so it, when David concludes by looking forward to the future, he, he makes our final shift into Psalms 106. And that Psalm, it's verse 35, says, Save us, O God, of our salvation and gather us and deliver us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory and praise. 
Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praise the Lord. So when I read this, it kind of threw me for a little bit, because if we're just looking at the events in First Chronicles, it seems weird that you would ask to have the, the people return from nation to nation. But then I got to really thinking about the, the context of the psalm overall. And, you know, this wasn't written to Jews in exile, which that would make total sense if we're ta- just talking to Jews in exile. But if you think about this eternal um, perspective, capturing Canaan and establishing Jerusalem really is just the beginning. Mm-hmm. And the us who needs to be gathered from nation to nation, uh, from nation to nation, is us. I mean, it, it's literally us. It's everyone who looks to God for salvation. And we're going to see that carried through to Acts 2. Where yeah, and, and gather us from nation to nation wouldn't make much sense for David to sing that if this is pre—I mean, I, this was written after the captivity, but David wrote it before captivity. Right. It doesn't make any sense. Right. So yeah, if you're looking after captivity with the writing of all of the book of Chronicles, then okay, absolutely. But if you look at it as David writing it for the 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 return of the ark. Wouldn't be the return. It would just be the first uh, the, yeah. The movement. Uh, yeah. When moving the ark into Jerusalem, then you're right. It it makes no sense unless the people God's gathering to himself is more than just the biological descendants of Abraham, Isaac, mm-hmm. and Jacob. And, and it really is anyone who's looking for proof that this creator God does care about them, which is what the whole psalm is about. Yeah, and, and you see this echoed in Jesus where he says, I have sheep you don't know about. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah, and, and there, there's an often overlooked verse. Uh, yeah, that's and that's a huge one because when you know I saw a cartoon yesterday that uh, people who arrived at heaven going, "How did you get here? And how did you get here?" <laughs> uh, you know, and I don't have any great explanation for how God's going to work out everyone He's going to bring into the kingdom and what that's going to look like for everyone. Um, if you did, you'd write a book on it and then get kicked out of the church, probably. Probably. <laughs> so, but you know, the the thing is, what David is presenting here. This is the hope of all humanity, that he, God had made this covenant that extends as far back into history as we can get any kind of credible information about, mm-hmm. and it extends into the future and this culmination of all of us finding salvation with the Creator God, who loves us, and yes, he does bring judgment, but he, he brings hope within that judgment. He brings redemption within the, the, um, within the judgment. And David moving the ark to Jerusalem becomes emblematic of all who, who want to enthrone God in their lives. Mm-hmm. And you don't get to be someone who puts God on an ox cart and say, I'm a believer, because you aren't doing it right. You don't right. get to be someone who thinks that God can fall and you have to prop him up without there being consequences. and But when you listen to God and you follow his word and his prompting, now blessing comes out of that. And so it's to me, it's just, it's a great picture. And the story suddenly makes sense. Uzzah's death isn't pointless, and it's not God just being cold-hearted. It's God giving us a lesson in how we're supposed to respect him. Yep. 
and we we need to learn the lesson that David was learning that you know there's a, that line we have to toe where we have enough confidence to speak out and do the things God has called us to do but we need to do it with humility we need to stop and refer back to what God has revealed to us in his word and we need to inquire of the Lord mm-hmm, we need mm-hmm. to do the things that David forgot to do that got him into trouble and when he remembered it now Jerusalem can become the central location of worship, and it can be the place that God rules from the midst of his enemies, and he rules them with an iron rod. And so I I love the the picture that's here that before it had been troubling, now it's comforting because I have a fuller context of understanding. So this chapter in Chronicles, uh, it ends with another list of priests and their duties. And Second Samuel at this point has taken a completely different path. They, it, there's no song of praise in Samuel. There's no uh, display made by the priest or the Levites attesting to Israel's grandeur. Uh, the writer of Samuel actually moves us into a more intimate and uglier moment between David and his wife, Michal. Now, the, the chronicler does not include this the scenario with David and Michal because it doesn't serve their message. You know, this isn't one of David's finer moments. Um, they, there's no need for the chronicler to defend David over Saul, where Samuel very much so, the writer's going to take a swipe at whoever he can take a swipe at, whatever. Mm-hmm. And also he's going to, to use this as a way to kind of establish David's uh, supremacy over the, the household of Saul. So we're going to pick up in 2 Samuel 6, in verse 20, and it says, And David returned to bless his household, but Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today and covered himself before the eyes of his servants, female servants, uh, sorry, the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So David returns to bless his household. He, he's doing the right thing. He hasn't forgotten that while he's taking care of the rest of the nation and he's blessing the rest of his nation, he shouldn't neglect his own household. And in some way, he's, he's actually proving to be better than Abraham and Moses at this point. Because if you study Abraham and Moses' home life, they're a mess. And there was often a temptation for leadership in Israel to become so focused on leading Israel and serving God through leadership of Israel that they forgot their own household. So Michal comes out to greet David. Now, a woman who comes or goes out is always problematic in Scripture. Uh, We go back to Leah, who she Mm -hmm. went out to meet Jacob. Uh, Tamar, she goes out. And when I say problematic, I'm not saying that they're necessarily being bad. I'm just saying they pose a problem or difficulty (laughs) for the people in their lives. So... David's about to get an earful. David is about to, to get an earful. And we're reminded also, too, before he does, that this is Saul's daughter. This right. is her identity at this point. She's not David's wife. She's Saul's daughter. And she, she does. She launches into this tirade against David's behavior, the, what she had witnessed from the window back in verse 15. And she basically accuses him of immodesty, of revealing himself, not just to servant girls. And I thought this was interesting. She doesn't just tell him, you uncovered yourself before servants, girls. You uncovered yourself before the servant girls of your servants. So, you know, the the lowest person on the societal rung of their time 
is the servant of a servant, particularly a female servant, and she calls him vulgar or vain, worthless. And, you know, several factors can play into Mikkel's um, reaction. And, you know, I kind of hate how most commentators flatten her. Uh, she, she becomes this, just this kind of evil, vindictive witch of a woman. And I, I think that kind of takes the humanity out of her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we need to remember what she's been through at this point. I mean, her father was an unpredictable madman mm-hmm. who tried to kill David and her brother on several different attempts, uh, d- different occasions. Um, there was a good possibility that when she helped David escape, that her life was in danger. We see right. that in the text. Um, she, she lives through that, but then she's married off to some other guy. And we're not told if it's with or without her consent, but we do know that she had loved David, so she'd lost the man she loved. And the thing is, in this other marriage, this seems to be the one time that she had actually had somebody love her. Paul Thiel wept whenever she was taken from him. And so to be ripped away from the one person who's actually exhibiting some love for you, oh my goodness, that's that's crazy and painful. And you know, when she gets back to David, <laughs> this is what I come back to. <laughs> it's, well, he's got six wives and he's got sons with these other women. And so she's basically a nobody in her own house when she should at least have the honor accorded to being the first wife. Right. And because David shouldn't have married these other women without her input. And yet he did. So, bottom line here, this woman's life has been nothing but one traumatic event after another. Right. And. I've got a lot of sympathy for her. And, you know, her only claim to any kind of honor and respect at this point is because she's married to the king and now he's out acting like a madman in public, exposing herself. And you know that alarm bells have to be going off all over the place for her because right before Saul was completely sliding off the deep end and Mm -hmm. went out of his mind, he'd been laid out naked all day and all night and prophesied at Rama. That's 1 Samuel 19.24, not to mention that the friction, <laughs> you've got something. Well, I'm saying then, then there, you know, after that event that, you know, you get repeated, is it after, after that event, is Saul also among the prophets? Mm-hmm, exactly. Who were looked down on yeah. in a lot of ways. So then, yeah, you have that right yeah. in there. You know, it's like, this was such a big deal that they literally, it became a household saying, apparently. Exactly. And this is the legacy that, that, you know, the writer ascribes to her, she's Saul's daughter. Mm-hmm. And then you've got to remember that the friction between David and Saul, where did it start? With the adoration of the slave girls. And so if this isn't enough to trigger a complete and total PTSD response in a person, I don't know what is. Hmm. Yep. And, and I'm saying that as someone who's had some dealing with, with PTSD. And I'm not saying this excuses what she does. Right. She, she is out of line. But at the same time, David is out of line. And we're going to talk about that. But I want to talk about the woman at the window motif. This is something we find many times in Scripture. We encountered it in Judges 5 with Sisera's mother. She's looking out the window and she paints this picture of this alternate reality that glorified her son, not realizing that JL had driven a tent peg through his head. And we're going to encounter it again with Jezebel as she witnessed those who are coming to to kill her. Amos is going to refer to 
decorative uh, plaques. We find these in Samaria, uh, so we actually have representations. But there is uh, there are plaques from Samaria that present women at the window, and they're staring down at a world that they're never going to get to experience. Now, a window represents enlightenment for men. When we have men at the window in the Bible, like Abimelech looks down at the, win- at the window and he sees Isaac and Rebekah together and realizes, oh, wait a minute, that's his wife, not his sister. Or Noah's window that reveals that the flood has receded and it's time for them to leave. For a woman, however, the window represents distance and the inability to affect change in the world or their circumstances. And the, the only time that there's any exception is in cases of extreme courage and the willingness to take great risk. And that's what we find with another famous window, which is Rahab. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she lets the spies down through the window. And if she had been caught, then she would have been put to death. But by this time, Macau is either too jaded or she's just too worn out to take another risk. Because she had already taken one in marrying David in the first place. Sure, sure. Or, or ex- and, then, and then helping him escape. And it, then, yeah, it's, it's all crazy. Yeah. And, and so she doesn't, she doesn't take that risk. And she doesn't cross over to join David in ex- exuberance. Instead, she, she retreats to this safe and lonely world of propriety and, and says, you know, I'm not going to be a part of this. And I, I think we need to look at David's response, because in verse 21, what David says to her, David says to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all of his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the but by the female servants whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. Now, I know a lot of people who want to really celebrate David for this speech. Yep. This is an awful thing to say to your spouse. <laughs> I, I let, let's just be real. It, it's, this was a speech designed to hurt. Oh, yeah. Well, it... I, oh my gosh, uh, I, I've got more on this. Go ahead with what you've got, because there's, you were talking about people holding it in high esteem, but go ahead. We'll... <laughs> well, I, if you rephrase this and put this into today's vernacular, this is an Emily translation, so take it for what it's worth. Yeah, I did. I had a good reason. Okay, fine. Don't get mad because your family's trash and I'm better than they are. I'm going to do what I think is right. And if you don't like it, you like what you've seen so far. Well, buckle up, buttercup, because you ain't seen nothing yet. It's pretty much what he's saying. All those girls are going to fling themselves at my feet for what I've done. You, you don't say things like this to your spouse. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, it's obviously a very spiteful thing to say. Well, there, there's no compassion. There's no concern. He knew what she had lived through. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He had seen what it was like to be from Saul's house. He had been there with her. They, if nothing else, they could have had a very brother and sister-like existence before they did get married. And so there would have been lots of reasons why they should be more connected than any of the other wives that David acquires along the way. And, you know, 
I, I probably shouldn't admit this because I kind of get where David's coming from. I mean, he's flying high. He's had a great day. And I, I don't care who you are. It seems like, man, you go out and you do something wonderful. You come home. There's somebody waiting to ruin your day. <laughs> I, I, you know this is true. Anybody who's had a family knows I, this is I true. I don't think they're necessarily <laughs> waiting to ruin the day. I think that's t- that 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 implies intent and right. premeditation. This is true, but it seems like you know all the the stars align for that person to have a horrible day. So they're gonna <laughs> they kind of suck you off the 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 high that you're having you know, off your yeah. little pedestal. And it, it's not, I mean, it, it's just not any fun. And, you know, I, I've had times where we've gone out or I've gone out and I've had like this great, wonderful little ministry opportunity. And I've just had this wonderful time and I get home and I find out my husband's been dealing with a flat tire and a dead car battery. And, you know, he's grumpy and he doesn't, he doesn't appreciate I'm still flying high and you need to let me fly high for a little bit longer. So, yeah, (laughs) but man, this whole bit about, well, I'm look, I'm the one that God chose, not your dad. Yeah. (laughs) That, that, I mean, really? Well, And that remark about the slaves girl, the slave girls was that for any other reason than to make her jealous. Right. I, I right. mean, this was calculated. Mm-hmm. This was David who well, has... And there's, there's kind of this implication that, um, look, the only reason you're here is because I'm here. Yeah. And you're just as good to me as any of the slave girls, basically is what he's saying. Oh, yeah. And that's ridiculous. Absolutely. And... Yeah, this is David. And who's... If anyone wants to test this theory and get back to us, I'm not gonna. But uh, try saying some of these things to your spouse. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. Don't, don't. It's a bad no, idea. Bad idea. Do not say this to your spouse. Well, but this is the flip side of David's gift. The only time you should say this to your spouse is if they say, "Hey, can you read to me um, <laughs> what David said to McCall in verses 21 through 23?" That's it. That's the only time you should say this to your Pretty spouse. Pretty much. <laughs> but, you know, David, who we celebrate for being so gifted with words, which he is, this is the flip side of that gift. When it's out of bounds, it's out of order, it, it can damage as well uh, as build up. Yeah. And this is the reason why I think, well, let me tell us a little story here, because back in seminary, uh, one of my fellow students asked one of our profs said, you know, why don't we see the manifestation of God's spirit through healing and things like that? Like they did in the the new Testament. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Why isn't this happening today? And basically the prof said, you know, we, when you get that kind of gift, it, it, you get to choose how you use it. And so if you don't have enough responsibility and self-discipline to always use it correctly, I don't think God's going to give you something that you're going to hurt yourself and others with. Right. And so this is one time that we see David being very human and using that gift in a way that I don't think God would have approved of, because this is not the loving response. This is not the kind and gracious response. This isn't building his spouse up. Yeah. And so, yeah. But he, he takes all that energy from the day, that high of the day, and he just unleashes it on Mikal. And, as I was reading through this, I was actually reminded of another exchange. 
And, you know, David keeps going back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you go back to Jacob and Rachel, Genesis 30, verses 1 and 2, mm-hmm. Rachel confronts Jacob about being childless, and, and Jacob responds with anger. And he, he tells Rachel, who, by the way, Jacob had said that he loved Rachel, mm. but Jacob says, I'm not God. What does this have to do with me? He basically says, you need to leave me alone. Quit bothering me with things I can't fix. And then later when Laban confronts Jacob and says, hey, someone took the teraphim out of my house. Right. Jacob's response is whoever took them should die. And and says, he pronounces this, this death sentence over his own wife mm-hmm. without realizing that it is his wife. And the, the stories are connected uh, as far as David and Michal and Jacob and, and Rachel because it's very infrequent that you have either spouse in a marriage say that they love the other one. And these are the two notable exceptions. Jacob loved Rachel and Michal loved David. Mm-hmm. But then you also have the teraphim in, in both stories because remember that's what Michal hid in the bed to, to get David uh, some time to run away from Saul. And with both these men, the, the failure to respond with compassion has some, some serious consequences. Rachel's going to die in childbirth whenever she has Benjamin, and she's going to be buried on the roadside. She's not even get buried in the family grave. She just has this tomb out in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that, was, that would have been a source of, of great grief for uh, Jacob. He winds up actually being married, uh, buried with Leah. Michal, uh, we're told in verse 23, would have no children. And her lack of children actually leads to chaos in David's house. Mm-hmm. Because a son from David and a son from Saul's daughter would have completely united the kingdom. He would have been the heir apparent because he would have been the firstborn son of the first wife. Mm-hmm. And so there wouldn't have been all of this plotting and scheming and mm-hmm. murder mm-hmm. and rebellion. And you know, there were two attempted coups by David's own sons in trying to take the throne. Right. Why did this happen? Because who is supposed to be king isn't obvious from just the the birth order mm-hmm. like it should have been. And this is why Nathan the prophet, not you, but Nathan the prophet has to step in and go, by the way, Solomon is the one. And we can talk about all of sure. the political stuff with there. Yeah, we'll yeah, we'll get to that, I'm sure. But yeah, the this idea that this um all anyone knows about this verse typically is the Dave, song is, well no it's uh, well there's that does anyone listen to to david crowder anymore i have no idea um we love you david crowder i do i really I, do yeah, he's done some good stuff um but no what what's uh, you know i've been in the worship leader groups in the circles not all anyone knows of this speech mm-hmm. is well i'll become even more undignified you know as in to say you know just worship you know and go nuts and all that it's like that's not the point of the speech. No, it's not. And it's basically, I mean, trying to use God as an excuse to hurt somebody. Mm-hmm. Well, and then go back. Okay, so if you're going to worship and you're going to just go crazy nuts with it, go back to the start of the story. Whenever they started out before Uzzah had died, the celebrating, the frivolous nature of what they were doing mm-hmm. in the guise of, of worship. 
Right. And so there's your there's your caution and the balance that that's not how you should read this. It's in the text. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. get there before you even get here. And then I, I did think it was interesting, Brueggemann, and I should have wrote out this quote, but I didn't. He he said, you know, if you I'm probably butchering this, so bear with me, but he basically talked about people using this as a verse to defend liturgical dance. Is there a place for that? That's not even the discussion I want to have. But he <laughs> um, he points out, he said, maybe if we're going to talk about that, then we need to be talking about the realignment of power with God's covenant promises mm-hmm. and the transformation of power from the old to the new in the you know in how we're looking at power within our community mm-hmm. and you know i cannot say that any time i've been around liturgical dance that that was something that was going on and so um like i said i'm not going to talk about whether it's right or wrong i i'm not prepared to go there but the the idea that david just losing his mind and dancing like a madman based on these words was was completely appropriate is to fail to grasp the totality of the mm. message here because you know david may have started in a very pure place but the truth is his pride was stung whenever michael started talking to him and you know he was extolling the beauty of fulfilling his covenant to god but he is completely failing to uphold his covenant with his wife. Now, I'm not saying Mikal is is guiltless. Uh, she's out of line. And, you know, he was supposed to lead the people by example, but he's failing to lead his wife by example. And, and again, the, this, this temptation of every great leader in the Old Testament is to neglect their household in favor of worshiping God and leading on God's behalf. And it seemed like David had started at the right place. And you've got to wonder if just one of them, either one of them, had handled this just a little differently, how much would history have been uh, impacted? Because, you know, from this point on, every bright spot in David's reign is going to be punctuated with catastrophe. Mm-hmm. And usually uh, those catastrophes will mirror the same things that happened in Jacob's um, Jacob's life. And so it, it, it's a fascinating thing to look at when you when you do hold that beginning of the story from Uzzah and the idea of being frivolous in how you worship God leading to dire consequences. Mm-hmm in comparison to how it's, this passage is read today. So we really don't hear anything much from Mikal after this. I don't think we really hear anything at all from her yeah, after this. We'll find out. So, yeah. But um, we're getting ready to go into Second Sam, Samuel 7. And I have literally spent the entire last week in Second Samuel 7. Okay. Every day for the last week, except for Thursday, um, that this man, this chapter, I had no clue how big it was and how significant it was. And I'm just going to grab uh, Walter Brueggemann. He talks about this and 
I think it's a great setup for where we're getting ready to go. He says, okay, so first of all, let's just say chapter seven, that is um, the Lord's covenant with David is how it's titled here. And so David's got the ark in place and... Which, you know, I'm not suggesting this, and I haven't heard anyone say this. Okay. But if someone was reading the la- end of the last chapter mm-hmm. in its proper context and then reads this, and it's like, I could see somebody just completely running with that and being like, see, God made a covenant with David after he put his wife in her place. Yeah, right after he smacked and down. so <laughs> I want to point out that is not at all what we're saying. Exactly. Well, in the chronology, we've already shown how the chronology of 1 Samuel probably does not follow the the progression of events as they happened yeah and well, I just, yeah i just i just want to make sure we're not mm-hmm. you know handing over more ammunition to the idiot crowd out there uh, that, <laughs> uh, they probably aren't listening anyway we well got, i know we've but, got uh, smart listeners <laughs> well that's true uh, we have we've have a good set of listeners i gotta say the the conversations you guys bring up are great so thank you yes uh, in the battle store that's been fantastic anyway but like i said, wanted to touch on that, that that's not what's going on here is Right. God's not blessing David because of what he said at the end of the last chapter. Yes. And it, well, what's going on here, we're, we're seeing God set up the parameters for David's kingship and what it's supposed to look like. And, uh, oh my goodness, th- this, like I said, this chapter is just like, it's a gold mine of just stuff. And so I thought Walter Brueggemann, he summed it up well, uh, and you can never go wrong with Brueggemann. Uh, I just... Uh, I've heard some things he said that I'm a little off on, but go ahead. Yeah, well, most of the time, as far as a human teacher, he's one of my favorites. Uh, So this is what he has to say about chapter 7. I judge this oracle with its unconditional promise to David to be the most crucial theological statement in the Old Testament, but it is not the whole of the Old Testament faith. This core statement of of royal faith is a bold departure from the conditional character of the mosaic if. Sound interpretation requires us to recognize that while the covenantal if is silenced in this theology, it has not been nullified. Therefore, interpretation must struggle with the tension of if and nevertheless that is presented within the Bible in our lives in the very heart of God. God's conditional requirement and God's unconditional promise belong to the biblical faith and so (laughs) for those of you who don't like that the whole (laughs) if business because i did recently hear a radio radio podcast Podcast. preacher (laughs) say god never deals with if thens that is completely false i know there are whole books of the bible he has probably skipped in all of his study so um yeah no just read the book of deuteronomy Go through and circle how many times you you find if then right in and, Deuteronomy and, and the prophets too use if right. then quite a bit exactly. But with I love this because David's covenant is very much this is how things are going to be and this is how it's going to work out and there is no if it, it, it's a declaration of the way things are. But we've got to remember. From the first time David arrives on the scene 
he has been in pursuit of God. He's been checking in with God. He's been following God. Everything about his life, except for a few minor issues, and that one incident with Macau we just talked about, have been in service to God, and it's in pursuit of the promise God gave him with Samuel. So he's been living a life of faith even before he gets to this declaration of Mm. this is how things are going to be. And I love that. So a few more Bergerman quotes because I could not resist. Well, and also (laughs) you, you talk about he had lived a life of faith. And what I find interesting about David so often is you see him embracing the spirit of what the Torah mm-hmm. was about without actually following the letter in certain aspects. Precisely. And so I think that is like when you talk about this Brueggemann saying this bypasses the if-then type formula. Mm-hmm. That's why, I think. Well, I, and David's, I think David's already fulfilled the if. He, he's already fulfilled it to this okay. point. I can see that. Okay. Uh, it's kind of like um, Saul or Paul. You know, he had already fulfilled the if. He was chasing God. He was studying Torah. He was studying the Talmud, well, the precursor to the Talmud, uh, with yeah. these <laughs> rabbis. He and was discussing things with the people who wrote the... <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> or actually, whose writing sayings were later compiled. Yes. And so, you know, when we have the, these declarations of this is how it's going to be, it's because people have already gone out of their way to demonstrate this is where they're, they're, they want their life to go. Yeah. It wasn't that God said, oh, by the way, you're going to do this, and they had to to follow. It's people who have already said, I'm going to do this, and God says, good on you. <laughs> this is how we're going to follow up. Yeah. And so, you know, but I, I, I do love that about David. Now, Brueggemann goes on to say, the ideological utterance is the taproot of evangelical faith in the Bible. And then he explains, this is what he defines evangelical faith as. So we need his definition. That is faith that relies on the free promise of the gospel. So that's how he defines evangelical faith. It's faith that relies on the free promise of the gospel. So a gospel that is accepted by faith through in salvation mm-hmm. experience mm-hmm. through grace. So it's the taproot of the messianic ideas of ancient Israel. This is where we find where Israel comes up with this idea of a future Messiah that's going to be like David and why they misunderstood when Jesus shows up. It all goes back to this chapter mm-hmm. because I don't think I realized where the starting point was before I started reading this. Gotcha. I mean, I knew it was within David's reign, yeah, but I didn't realize we could pinpoint it this specifically. So um, Brueggemann also says, thus evangelical faith, com- faith comes in the form of royal ideology, which of course... Uh, N.T. Wright has done a lot of work with the idea of kingship and mm-hmm. uh, the messianic idea. So we're going to be able to get into a lot of that um, whenever we move forward into the New Testament and how these ideas of David play into that, which I am really looking forward to the New Testament now that we've spent so much time mm-hmm. with David. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, and even just in regular reading and study, and anytime I look at something in the New Testament, now I'm like, oh. This I get it. T- yeah, this ties back to, and, and I think having this this historical foundation is what's going to make the New Testament uh, take on a new dimension. Because I've I've worked really hard that while I've been studying for all this stuff, mm-hmm. that I don't 
I mean, we're, you know, there's some places where definitely I have to go to the New Testament because I know how well it ties in, but mm-hmm. I'm really working hard not to bring that New Testament back into the Old Testament. I, I want to spend the time with what the Old Testament reader would understand, and that way I'm trying to read it from their perspective moving forward mm-hmm. instead mm-hmm. of my perspective moving backwards. Because you know the foundation of anything it is the most significant part. Right. You don't get the foundation right, you're going to mess up everything else. And so, uh, interesting little um, example of that. So a few years back, I converted an old school bus. Right. And okay. so I'm basically building within this this metal shell that all of the the parameters are set that I have to operate within. But the problem is I couldn't use a level. And right. the reason why I couldn't use level because where I had parked the bus was not flat. Right. And so I realized how much not having a level surface to work from and being denied that one tool, now I had to work four times as hard to get anything in its proper place. I know a trick I can show you later. Well, I, you know, there's, there's ways around it, <laughs> but at the same time, if it, just having that foundation that's level mm-hmm. and accurate is going to make your life a whole lot easier. Oh, yeah, and, absolutely. And I actually learned more about, uh, well, not more, but I learned a lot about faith and the application of faith in building that old school bus. So, because you had to think through the process in a whole different way. Yeah. But we'll probably stop right there. That's a good setup, I think, uh, for our time. Yeah, because I, I didn't want to get partway through seven and then have to break because this is our last, I think it's our last show for this weekend. Yeah. So, well, and then I would forget to, what I was going to say. So, be that would tackle be good. all of seven, hopefully, at once or at least a good, it, right? At least in a weekend, not in a show. Yeah. So, I don't forget and repeat myself too much. I mean, sometimes I know we do that anyway, but you know, that's part of uh, teaching is you've got to be repetitive to kind of drill that in mm-hmm. and say, you know, I hope sometimes when people are reading their Bible, they like hear me say something in their head. I, I, I really, I, I would really like to think about that, that, you know, they're studying along and all of a sudden they just come across something that reminds them of, of me. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> I don't know where to go from there. So anyway, everyone, thanks for joining us. And if you want to be part of the conversation, tell Emily when she's when you When I'm been talking thinking. in your thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Tell Emily when you think of her. So uh anyhow, I guess um if you want to be part of that conversation, Raven Creek SC on all the social media, ravencreeksc.com is the website. Um join us there for this show, uh the commentarians with Joe Zaragoza, uh, or uh, change my mind with Luke T. Harrington. It's all a good time. And subscribe and rate us, please. Subscribe and rate us. Share it with a friend. Um, yes. If you liked it. And as Luke said in one of his episodes, if you didn't like it, share it with an enemy. Um, <laughs> whatever works for you. Whatever, <laughs> whatever works best. So, anyway, that being said, uh, we better be quiet um, and let the show in. We'll see you. Bye. Bye. Oddities Podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. 
As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.